This episode of Mossback is presented by the Crosscut Ideas Festival, April 29th to May 6th, online and in Seattle. You know, the New Deal did so much in 10 years that we can't even imagine a transformation of society in terms of a building up. You can, you can easily imagine society falling apart in 10 years. It's very hard to imagine a society that makes that much change in that period of time. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut, which is a collection of episodes on the curious and quirky history of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knute Berger. And today we're talking about the New Deal. If you haven't already seen the video, it's called The Big Deal, New Deal. Stop right now. Go to the show notes or the show page on Crosscut.com and check it out. And we'll see you back here in a bit. Every day, those of us in Washington state are still impacted by the New Deal, a multi-pronged program to lift America out of the Great Depression. In 1933, the newly elected president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, initiated a series of federal programs and agencies to provide jobs and build the country's physical and social infrastructure. In the West, it sought to pull the region from the frontier period into a new modern century. Knut, what about the New Deal made you do this story right now? Well, the New Deal was kind of a fixture of uh, my upbringing in that um, the parents of my generation uh, were young adults or adults during the 1930s. So they experienced the Depression. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about the New Deal pro and con. Um, in my family, my parents were Republicans. They were pretty much anti-New Dealers. Um my father served in the war, like a lot of uh, his generation, and I think it was a political dividing line. Um, you know, I had friends whose parents were die-hard uh, Roosevelt supporters. Franklin D. Roosevelt, the New Deal was the best thing that ever happened. So, um, and it occurred to me that that generation is disappearing. There are a lot of people who really don't know about the New Deal. And probably people who see products of the New Deal, projects that were born of the New Deal almost every day of their lives and have no idea where that came from. Yeah, well, this is the fascinating thing to me is that we argue still about the scope of government and about how big is too big, uh, how we're faced with uh, these potentially large projects to undertake or not undertake. And the New Deal was really... Um, a transformative event for the Pacific Northwest. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized how transformative it was. So let's put a bit of a frame on this for people who don't know. What was the New Deal? Well, the New Deal was a campaign promise that Franklin D. Roosevelt made when he ran for president in 1932. He was running against the incumbent Herbert Hoover. Um, the Great Depression had started. The stock market crashed in 1929. 
and there were a host of problems uh, that resulted, huge uh, amounts of unemployment nationally. There were also some disasters going on, the main one being uh, the Dust Bowl. So in 1933, when FDR took office, what was the toll of the Depression on the Northwest? What, what did that picture look like? The Depression was nationwide, but in the Pacific Northwest, it had some you know, particular impacts, one of which was uh, it hit the resource economy really hard. And that was the, the, the bulk of our economy at that point. So that you're talking about the timber business, you're talking about farming and agriculture, orchards, you're talking about you know, shipbuilding, uh, fishing, mining, uh, and thousands of people were put out of work. I mean, the unemployment rate eventually rose to about 20, 25 percent, huge unemployment figures. And in Seattle, as in some other cities, uh, there were large what we call Hoovervilles, which were communities of people put out of work. They blamed Herbert Hoover. Uh, thus the name. Uh, and these were large shanty towns that were built in various places. We had one uh, that most famously uh, down near where the Seattle stadiums are now. Right. So other than putting many thousands of residents back to work, giving them jobs, giving them a paycheck, were there specific goals in the hard infrastructure part of the New Deal for the Northwest? Yeah, there really were. And I think one of the goals, which is a very big sort of broad goal, was to bring the West into the 20th century. I mean, we're talking about homesteaders. We're talking about farming and land use practices that were essentially the practices that the settlers brought with them off the Oregon Trail. In terms of uh, statewide, we were kind of living in the previous century. And so I think one opportunity for the New Deal was to put in place social infrastructure that would support people during a time of change, during a time of involuntary change. Uh, so rural electrification, that was a big deal. Roosevelt was a big believer in hydroelectric power. So you're looking at the Columbia River and the Snake River. You're looking at can you build dams? Can you create better water sources for places that don't have much water? Building reservoirs, building canals. Can you build a transportation infrastructure uh, in a place with uh, inland sea and mountains and desert and that kind of thing? So I think the, a big goal was modernization along with the goal of can we retrain people for a modern economy? What was the biggest project, and I have a feeling you're going to say the Grand Coulee? <laughs> Grand Coulee Dam, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of, I mean, you can look at the New Deal generally and say, well, Social Security and, uh, and the whole idea of, of uh, federal relief and whatnot. I mean, there were large uh, programs that are still with us today. But if you're thinking about the infrastructure issue uh, and you're thinking about um, what's going to drive the, the, the modernization, Grand Coulee Dam was really a game changer. I mean, it, it profoundly changed the Northwest and Washington State. We had <clears throat> access to tremendous uh, hydroelectric power that in, it was able to help us build the um, industrial and manufacturing infrastructure. You could make cheap aluminum. Who needed cheap aluminum? Boeing needed cheap aluminum to build airplanes. You know, it was it was the the Columbia River and 
uh, you know, that that helped the Manhattan Project get off the ground. So the atomic energy industry, uh, you know, was a result. There's land reclamation. You know, one of the chief benefits of the Grand Coulee Project was transforming hundreds of thousands of acres uh, into arable land through irrigation. And, you know, in so many respects, um, there's sort of pre-Grand Coulee and post-Grand Coulee. So it was it was kind of on the books as, you know, this would be a great project to do here. And the question was, was it going to be done and who was going to do it? And Roosevelt basically was stepping in and saying, well, guess what? The federal government's going to do it. It just seems that big things were done in a short period of time. And it boggles my mind, especially when I think about our penchant for progress, how quickly these huge, complex projects were done. How did that happen? Well, it took a lot of planning and it took a lot of clout. First of all, Roosevelt was elected in 1932 with what we would consider now a mandate. I mean, he, he beat the pants off Herbert Hoover. He had certainly full support in Washington state. People had really bought into the New Deal plan. They knew that something had to happen, that the Great Depression was the worst financial catastrophe that had ever hit the country. And the banks were unsteady. And, uh, you know, it was the idea of the government intervening was something a lot of people were skeptical about, but desperate to see happen. So there was a lot of planning that went into what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And also, I think very smartly, they had their federal agendas about how they wanted to employ people because it was, you know, when you think about the infrastructure part of it, you're also thinking it's a jobs program. Right. And it's a jobs program for people who don't have jobs. So they're not going to worry about the people who are, who are doing well. So they're looking particularly at men and young men because many of these jobs in, in that era were still done by manual labor. You know, you're still having people going out with picks and shovels. And it was very important to get these guys employed so that you they would have some income, they would have some self-respect and dignity, uh, but also some of their wages would be, you know, going back to mom and dad at home, uh, supporting the family, that kind of thing. And then the other smart thing was um, you know, the locals were not left out, you know, and, and this is where you get to the sort of shovel-ready part of it. You know, the federal government knew what it wanted to do in terms of uh, the dams or or um, the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was stood up very quickly um, to work on parks and national parks and that kind of thing. And so um, the Works Progress Administration, uh, later the Works Projects Administration, the WPA, they had offices locally that worked with state offices that um, coordinated public relief uh, jobs programs, and also vetted infrastructure projects. So if you got in your car in Seattle or got on your bike or had an afternoon to go walking and you took a couple hours to do this, what kinds of things would you see immediately that were the product and the benefit of the New Deal? 
Yeah, well, part of it's just kind of knowing what to look for. So, for example, both the Ballard and Fremont bridges were heavily redone uh, with New Deal funding. Um, Yesler Terrace was New Deal funded public housing project. Of course, it's been kind of redone since, but the original Yesler Terrace there on uh, First Hill um, was one of the very first integrated public housing projects, New Deal funded. Um, you find things, uh, you know, that Camp Long, built by the Civilian Conservation Corps. Um, you also find things like uh, the, the, the little the bathhouse at Madison Park, uh, near where I live at Madison Beach, heavily used. It's, it's both a community meeting place and, and a you know, traditional beach bathhouse built by the New Deal. Any park you go to of a certain age, Seward Park, uh, you know, uh, Mount Rainier, uh, these places are all, you know, have the heavy, heavy hand touch of the Civilian Conservation Corps. The Civilian Conservation Corps provided manpower to build roads, campsites, shelters, and trails for national, state, and local parks. A military-style organization, the CCC, sent mostly young men into the wilderness to make it more accessible to the public, to improve the environment, and provide unemployed youths with work and income for their families. What was the CCC, or the Civilian Conservation Corps? It was a military-style civilian organization, and it was specifically for young men. So I, I sort of describe it as like the Boy Scouts on steroids. <laughs> they built camps, scores of camps out in the boonies. Uh, the guys lived in barracks. They, uh, you know, had buglers and, and uniforms and that kind of thing. And they were put to work um, building trails, building roads, putting in... Um, uh, fire lookouts, they did tree planting, they fought fires, you know, they did all kinds of stuff to make the outdoors accessible to everyone. And that is another kind of legacy of the New Deal is this, this populist approach, which is, you know, we are, we're doing all these projects to benefit the common man uh, so that he can have electricity at his farmhouse, that um, she can go hiking in a national park and can drive there in the car, park the car, stay in a lodge, and go on a trail that's accessible. So the amenities in, our, in the national parks, the, our beautiful national parks, were, were uh, created through the CCC? Yeah, many of them were. And uh, they built, uh, you know, things like hiking shelters. They put in, and they did the dirty work, I mean, too. I mean, they put in sewer systems. They put in electrical systems. They put in plumbing. They did that for, for many, many projects. They built many miles of, you know, sewers and, and that kind of thing. But the CCC was specifically working. And the CCC, which was up and functioning by the summer of 1933... So Roosevelt takes office early in 1933. He's got the CCC going, you know, by, by summer. And um, 
people began to see in these rural areas, began to see the benefits really quickly of the New Deal. And this is one of the interesting things because um, there were places where they're working in areas where the Republican legislators had, or conservative Democrats had opposed New Deal legislation. But then a couple years later, when there was discussion about closing the camps, Congress is going, no, 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 you can't shut our camp down. <laughs> you know, we want our CCC people. So they were providing an immediate benefit, both economically through employment, but an immediate benefit in terms of um, making areas able to sustain tourism and other kinds of growth. We'll be right back after this message. Are you nerdy by nature? Do you get thirsty for thinkers? The Crosscut Ideas Festival is returning to Seattle April 29th to May 6th with fresh conversations to quench your curiosity. We'll explore issues and innovations in science, health, equity, and politics, like wokeness in America, spiritual prescriptions for mental health, the heavy hand of the Supreme Court, and the rise of AI. Join Michael Barbaro, Audie Cornish, Eric Holder, Deepak Chopra, Ibram X. Kendi, Andrew Yang, and more. Tickets at crosscut.com festival. It seems to me the infrastructure, the hardscape part of the New Deal is, is very physical. You can touch it. You can see it. How did the New Deal reach out to the arts and to our cultural and social life? So the Bonneville Power Administration, which was you know, a New Deal agency, um, hired Woody Guthrie to come to Washington and Oregon and travel and visit all the dam projects and write a series of songs about them. And they paid him, I think he wrote 20 songs, 25 songs, something like that. He was paid about $10 a song, as it turned out. And of course, he was a known, you know, radical, anti-fascist, a guy who did not like the local chamber of commerce. And here he was taking a government paycheck to basically go out and do PR for uh, hydropower and these big government dam projects. And of course, many of the supporters of these dam projects were, uh, you know, the people that Woody Guthrie railed against, you know, 364 other days of the year. Green Douglas Burr, where the waters cut through, down her wild mountains and canyons she flew, Canadian Northwest to the ocean so blue, it's roll on Columbia, roll on, roll on Columbia. And so even at the time, people are like, what, what is he doing, you know? Uh, and But Guthrie really believed that these projects were benefiting the little guy. And he was willing, he was willing to kind of, you know, go out, take the government's paltry offering and write these songs. And of course he wrote, you know, there's a wonderful song about Grand Cooley Dam that's, you know, really captures the sort of spirit of the scale of this thing. I mean, no, nobody had built a dam like Grand Cooley. It was the biggest dam in the world. It was, you know, in its time. 
and um, you know, singing the praises of it, singing of the power of the Columbia River. I, when I was a kid, we sang folk songs every night after dinner at summer camp. You know, sitting in the in the dining hall, and you know, roll on Columbia was an absolute standard. We all grew up. That was you know, it was that was like the Northwest anthem. Roll on Columbia, roll on. Is there any way to measure what the New Deal cost in today's dollars? I read something the other day that that mentioned that the government was spending the equivalent of 40% of the 1929 GDP. So extrapolating that, it was something like $30 trillion in today's dollars, which makes a $1 trillion infrastructure bill right now seem pretty light. Yeah, well, it is pretty light compared to to the New Deal. When you look at the scope of it, it's just astounding. I mean, people have critiqued infrastructure projects because, you know, you still hear the criticism that, oh, well, this infrastructure project isn't infrastructure because it has social programs attached to it. Well, the New Deal had that too. I mean, the social infrastructure is you know, part of that tradition. And I think when you see the scope of it in terms of, you know, a huge expensive dam project, you see, you know, the thousands of miles of road and and, and sewer systems and bridges uh, that they're building, it's, it's on a scale we can't really imagine now. Surely there must have been downsides of the New Deal in the Northwest. What were those, do you think? Well, now we know that the Columbian Snake River dams have been problematic also. They have, uh, you know, in terms of how um, the indigenous lands that were flooded, the salmon runs that were destroyed, um, you know, we, you can, you know, offer criticism about some of the industrial uses of the water and the power. Hanford, is that really, you know, a great idea? It's one of the most toxic waste sites in the world, still a threat today and will be for thousands of years unless we figure something out. And Hanford wouldn't have been possible without the Grand Coulee Dam. It was a World War II project, not a New Deal project, but it benefited from the New Deal because they had access to power and they had access to water for cooling the primitive reactors that they built to create, you know, create the substances that were then used in, uh, you know, in Nagasaki and afterwards. And that created a pollution problem. So a lot of these projects were undertaken on their face, but it wasn't like they were doing extensive environmental studies that said, well, you know, here's what's going to happen down the line. And a lot of the wasteland that they wanted to um, re, you know, redevelop, remake. They just looked at it and said, well, this is desert and it's worthless. Um, now we're trying to save parts of the original desert. So, you know, the environmental consequences of both modernization, but also a lot of the specific projects, um, you know, 
there was a price to pay that wasn't recognized at the time. How did the New Deal prepare us, or did it, for the coming war, World War II? Yeah, well, that you know, I mean, the interesting thing about World War II is that was when the New Deal ended, basically. The war took over as the generator of all of this activity. Yes, exactly. Um, almost everything went either went went away or was converted. And people point to the New Deal and say, well, the New Deal didn't bring America out of the Depression. World War II did. But I think that the musculature of the federal government, some of the infrastructure that was created by the New Deal, roads, manufacturing, etc., allowed us to be prepared for ramping up so quickly. And this was one of the things that shocked both the Germans and the Japanese was the rapidity with which America armed itself. You know, that we went from having a very small standing army to being able to build innumerable numbers of ships. And, you know, when the fleet was bombed at Pearl Harbor, all those ships were back in fighting condition not long after. And we built 13,000 B-17s. Yeah, exactly. I think that people got used to the idea that the federal government had a lot of muscle. It had put a lot of things in place that enabled a massive war effort to be realistic. What do you think the political legacy of the New Deal is? So I think there's still a battle going on over the sort of New Deal slash Roosevelt legacy and what we now think of as the Reagan legacy, which is in the 1930s, your best friend was the federal government. It was here to help. And then Reagan famously said, you know, that those were the scariest words, you know, when the government says it's here to help. It's actually, you know, here to screw you over, basically. So I think the the fractures that existed in the New Deal period still exist, but many of the aspects of having a very strong federal government, having uh, welfare, having Social Security, um, having public infrastructure, um, building, you know, building local projects as well as big federal projects. I mean, I think all of that. Um, is partly a legacy of the New Deal. One wonders, where would we be without the New Deal's upsides? We can take heart that we're capable of rising to huge challenges when crises arise. Even those that were and are mostly man-made. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Seth Halloran, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossbacks Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com 
or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its seventh season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through May. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode.